Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is synchronicity? How does it differ from ordinary coincidence? How weird can synchronicity get? Well, hello there and welcome to the 435th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul. And Ben, as usual on Mondays lately, is in the midst of his commute from classes in Boston and will, as always, try to call in from the train if he can and doesn't have too much homework. In response to a question from a listener on our show two weeks ago, we introduced the subject of synchronicity. That's a term for two or more seemingly unrelated or unlikely events that take place at the same time or are synchronized. And together they bring about a certain result. It can seem suspiciously like someone or something planned the result. Now, as we go along tonight, we'd love to hear any stories you might have about weird coincidences and synchronicities in your own life. And the numbers, as you know, I'm sure, are 401-766-1240 or 800-449-1240. As we said, synchronicity seems to indicate that things take place not only by being caused, but by having meaning. In other words, events can take place because another event directly caused them. Uh, you know, that truck might hit you because you ran the stop sign. Or events might not really have, have uh, an actual cause, but might take place simply because they need to take place. I think it's worth repeating the example of synchronicity, synchronicity that we used two weeks ago because it's so striking. I've never been able to find any evidence that the story is inaccurate. So here we go again. I apologize if you've heard this before. It has to do, again, with King Umberto I of Italy, who lived from 1844 to 1890. On July 28, 1900, the king was in the city of Monza, which is in the northern part of the country, not far from the Swiss border. And he and his aide decided to eat out at a small restaurant. Naturally, everybody was excited that the king was coming, and the restaurant owner personally waited on the table and took the king's order. Both the king and the proprietor were shocked because they not only looked alike, they could have been twins. It turned out that they had the same name, Umberto. It also turned out that they were born on the same day, March 14, 1844, in the same town. Both their wives were named Margarita, and both couples had married on the same day. They both had a son, Vittorio, and it keeps going. They had both served in the Italian Armed Forces and had been promoted on the same day. King Umberto's coronation had taken place on the same day that the other Umberto had opened his restaurant. The king was so taken by all this that he invited the restaurant fellow to visit him and the queen the next day. The king was horrified to receive word that, that day that his new friend had been shot and killed by accident that morning. There wasn't much time to mourn because that same day an assassin shot King Umberto through the heart and killed him. So both men ended up dying on the same day as well as everything else on the same day, July 29th, 1900. Now, uh, a bit of uh, personal synchronicity here. Uh, King Umberto is the image, I think, of our darling producer, Steve Bianchi, and I just showed him a picture of that. Are you, Steve, you're going to have to work on that mustache. Wow. It's amazing, huh? It's like uh, the, the handlebar plus. You could have been the king of Italy or the owner of a nice restaurant in Monza. Well, in another life, I may have been. Well, that, well we've talked king about that Italy. many times, parallel lives. <laughs> so that, my friends, was synchronicity with a vengeance. So where's the meaning in all that? Well, let's keep going. There are many examples, not of art imitating reality, but of reality imitating art. 
The synchronicities surrounding the sinking of Titanic over 100 years ago and the terrible loss of over 1,500 lives are almost as scary as the event itself. In 1898, 14 years before Titanic went down, a novelist named Morgan Robertson wrote a book called Futility or the Wreck of the Titan. Beyond the uncanny similarity in the names of the ships was the fact that the actual sinking was amazingly like the one described in the book. Both the fictional ship and the real ship were of almost the same size and displacement. That's, well, how much, well, that's a nautical term. The largest man-made floating objects ever built. Each one had three propellers, very unusual for the day, and, all, and were described as unsinkable. Both had a shortage of lifeboats. The Titanic carried only 20 lifeboats, including four folding canvas boats, less than half the number required for her passenger and crew capacity of 3,000. In the novel, the Titan carried as few lifeboats, quote, as the law allowed, unquote. 24, less than half needed for its 3,000-person capacity. Titanic sank because it struck an iceberg on its starboard side. The starboard side is the right side for you landlubbers. She was doing 22 and a half knots. A knot is 1.151 miles per hour, if you ever wondered that. On a flat, calm sea on the night of April 14, 1912, in the North Atlantic, 460 miles east of Newfoundland, which is now part of Canada. Hurtling along at 25 knots, the Titan in the fictional book also struck an iceberg on the starboard side on an April night in the North Atlantic, also 460 miles east of Newfoundland. When Titanic went down, more than half of her 2,200 passengers and crew were killed. When the supposedly unsinkable Titan sank, more than half of her 2,500 passengers died. Practically the only difference between the real events and those in the novel were that Titanic went down bow first and the Titan capsized. And the synchronicity doesn't stop there. One of those who died in the real disaster was a controversial British journalist known as William T. Uh, it's spelled S-T-E-I-D, but I believe he pronounced it Steed. Anyway, his articles, books, and lectures are filled with images of sinking ships as a symbol of death. He used the image of a drowning person in panic to illustrate his view of the experience of death and what he believed is the disorientation that results from death. I can see that. I could go on and on. During a trip to England many years ago, I picked up the story of the Melchis family, who lived in the county of Bedfordshire. One night in 1975, they were watching A Night to Remember, the 1958 movie about the Titanic disaster, when a huge chunk of ice fell out of the sky and came crashing through their roof. As far as I know, nobody has ever found out where the ice came from. Now, exactly 40 years before that, in 1935... A collier, that's a ship that carried coal, was near the site of the Titanic disaster and itself struck an iceberg. It almost sank. Its name was Titanian. On top of that, the captain had been born on April 14, 1912, the very day of the Titanic disaster. And again, we'd love to hear any stories you might have about weird coincidences and synchronicities in your own life. The number's again, 401-766-1240 or 800-449-1240. So what's behind all these synchronicities? And we have plenty more coming. Most of us assume that for something to happen, something else has to happen to cause it. Like your living room window smashes because the kid across the road knocks a golf ball through it. The very word because has cause in it. And because of this belief in causality, 
you'd think that precognition or people seeing or even having a hunch about things before they happen would be impossible. But dear old quantum mechanics, that wild and woolly branch of physics that Ben and I base our paranormal work on, says otherwise. Quantum physics has a lot to do with subatomic particles, particles and waves that are even smaller than atoms. And are they ever weird? Two of the findings in that subatomic realm are that time and space are essentially meaningless and that effects can take place before the event that caused them. If that holds on our level at all, on our level of things, then precognition and synchronicity are completely normal and causality might not even mean very much. Here are some more examples. Excuse me. The whole idea that certain fates or destinies are attached to, to certain names whether of people, ships, places, or whatever, is closely related to the experience of synchronicity. One of the most haunting examples is the apparent synchronicity between Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy, both, of course, presidents of the United States. Now, I've looked at this information for years, backwards and forwards, and as far as I can see, it checks out. At the same time, any mathematician will tell you that there is a high statistical probability of similarities between people and their lives. But this Lincoln-Kennedy thing goes way beyond that, in my opinion. Lincoln was elected to Congress in 1846. Kennedy was ele- elected to Congress in 1946. Lincoln was elected president in 1860, Kennedy in 1960. While in the White House, Lincoln's secretary was named Kennedy, Kennedy's secretary was named Lincoln. Civil rights issues were major factors in both their administrations, to say the least. Both of the first ladies lost a child while living in the White House. <clears throat> Excuse me. A week before Lincoln was shot, he was in Monroe, Louisiana. I know this is stretching it a little, but this point is interesting. A week before Kennedy was shot, he was supposedly with Marilyn Monroe. Both Lincoln and Kennedy reportedly were convinced that they would be assassinated. Both were, of course, and both were shot on a Friday in the head by men from the South, at least if you believe the Warren Commission in Kennedy's case. Both presidents were succeeded by vice presidents named Johnson, who were both Southerners. Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln, was born in 1808. Lyndon Baines Johnson, who succeeded Kennedy, was born in 1908. John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated Lincoln, was born in 1839. Lee Harvey Oswald, accused of assassinating Kennedy, was born in 1939. Notice that each man is known to history by his triple name, each of which, by the way, has 15 letters. And it goes on. Lincoln was shot in a theater named Ford. Kennedy was shot in a car named the Lincoln, made by the Ford Motor Company. Booth ran from a theater and was caught in a warehouse. Oswald ran from a warehouse and was caught in a theater. Both Oswald and Booth were killed before they could be brought to trial. The name Lincoln and the name Kennedy, by the way, each has seven letters. And there's a little-known synchronistic prequel to this Lincoln assassination. A year before that event, Robert Todd Lincoln, the president's oldest son and then a student at Harvard, was on a railroad platform in Jersey City, New Jersey. The platform was overcrowded, and young Lincoln was accidentally pushed toward the tracks in the path of an oncoming train. As young Lincoln was about to fall off the platform and onto the tracks, a quick-thinking bystander grabbed him by the collar and hauled him back to safety just in time. The bystander was Edwin Booth, brother of assassin John Wilkes Booth. Robert Todd Lincoln lived until 1926. Speaking of U.S. presidents, there was a weird element of synchronicity known as the zero factor. 
Since the death from pneumonia of William Henry Harrison, elected in 1840, every president elected or re-elected in a year ending in zero, that's every 20 years, died in office, at least until the unsuccessful assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan on March 30th, 1981, which was, by the way, my 28th birthday, maybe another synchronicity. After Harrison, of course, there was Lincoln, elected in 1860. James A. Garfield, elected in 1880, was assassinated in a railroad station. William McKinley, re-elected, re-elected in 1900, was assassinated in 1901 by an anarchist. President Warren Harding, elected in 1920, died in 1923 under mysterious circumstances, some say poisoning, though it is not considered an assassination. Then, of course, there was Franklin D. Roosevelt, who died of a stroke in 1944 in the midst of an unprecedented third term in the White House. First elected in 1932, Roosevelt had, of course, been re-elected in 1940. That brings us to the man elected in 1960, John F. Kennedy, then to Ronald Reagan, elected in 1980, and the man who seems to have defeated the zero factor. Reagan was wounded by gunfire, but survived relatively unscathed. As a matter of fact, he went on to win re-election in 1984 with the highest number of electoral votes in presidential history. George W. Bush, elected in 2000, served for two terms and was none the worse for wear. And we'll see what happens in 2020. There is a 2020. Call us this evening with your own stories again, uh, weird coincidences, synchronicities in your own life. Numbers again, 401-766-1240 or 800-449-1240. Ben always tells me I never give the phone numbers enough during the show, so there they are. The first modern person to talk about synchronicity in any depth was Dr. Carl Jung lived from 1875 to 1961. Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist who started out as a disciple of Sigmund Freud, then concluded that some of Freud's ideas were fishy and decided to think for himself. Jung actually coined the term synchronicity. He defined it as, quote, temporarily coincident occurrences of a-causal events, unquote. A-causal means not having a cause. Jung's contention is that human minds, maybe all minds, have a relationship to each other, especially through concepts and the relationships among concepts. He said that this relationship can create synchronicity, minds working together to create meaningful events and results. People who believe in fate or destiny have sometimes seen this idea and yelled, Aha! Among modern psychics and even some licensed counselors, this has given rise to the idea of creating one's own reality, very popular among the New Age folks. That's an idea that's loved to death, of course, by modern people who have been brought up to believe that the universe is all about them. You can tell by the people in Winsaka to walk in the middle of the streets and don't even look. <coughs> Half of them in pajamas, by the way. It has also given some people the idea that someone or something else is pulling the strings in our lives and that we have no real control over events. That's known in philosophy as determinism. But I actually think that just the opposite may be true. That's my personal opinion. As any regular to the show, regular listener to the show knows, Ben and I base our work on the multiple worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. In multiverse awareness, as Ben and I like to call it, you start to get in touch with all the other simultaneous lives you are living in the multiverse, the vast uh, network of alternate parallel universes that in our experience explains the paranormal. That includes lives where you are very recognizable to yourself, others in which you are a complete nitwit, and still others in which you are a spiritual and intellectual giant. 
in some of those, you may be very aware that you need certain things to happen so that you can get better in this facet of yourself. You may be in a position, <clears throat> excuse me again, you may be in a position to positively influence synchronicity. Uh, in particular, it seems more like we're all together in sort of, um, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong page. Uh, anyway, I'll start that again. You may be in a position to positively influence your other lives, all of which make up the whole you and ultimately the whole us. You might be your own guardian angel. So the one influencing events might be your own subconscious. The minds with which your mind has a relationship, as Jung might say, might be other versions of your own. Personally, I think that explains synchronicity. Maybe not. Who knows? Meanwhile, examples of synchronicity do seem to be everywhere. In December 1975, Jean-Charles Willoquet, the most wanted crook in France, was arrested by members of the police anti-gang squad while he was watching a TV movie about an anti-gang squad. Canadian postal codes contain sequences of letters and numbers. The postal code for a farmer named McDonald contains a sequence that looks like E-I-E-I-O. During a television showing of the 1956 movie Around the World in 80 Days in April 1975, the power went out in the Scottish village of Ruthwell, just as David Niven and the other heroes were about to set off in their famous hot air balloon. The blackout occurred when two men in a hot air balloon accidentally knocked down the town's power lines. Despite the weird findings of modern physics, most of us like to think of the universe as, a, as the great scientists of the 18th century quote-unquote enlightenment did, as a vast, predictable machine running on fixed laws. Now, I think we find that thought rather comforting, but through the lens of the paranormal in general, and synchronicity in particular, it seems more like we're all together in an unfolding, many-faceted dream in the mind of God, whoever or whatever you might consider God to be. Synchronicity seems to have more in common with dreams. Some of these events are happy and funny. Others have a dark side, in disaster and death. And the events can be very personal in their nature. Many are full of irony. So take what happened to Australian opera star Marie Collier, who was performing in the Puccini Opera Tosca in London in December 1971. Collier was famous for her outstanding performances in the title role of that opera, in which her character leaps to her death. Everybody in Italian opera dies at the end. On December 8th of that year, 1971, the singer singer was in her London apartment taking, I should say, talking to her financial assistant and planning some performances in the United States. She walked over to an open window and suddenly fell out, plunging to her death. Literary synchronicities can also be hilarious. In 1979, I ran across an article in the British newspaper The Sunday Express that talked about a series of jewelry store robberies that had taken place in Spain. According to the story, seven diminutive men were arrested in Barcelona for these robberies. All of them appeared to suffer from dwarfism, generally defined as having an adult height of 4 feet 10 inches or less. Apparently their height somehow helped in the robberies. It turned out that the mastermind behind this gang uh, was a, a dapper blonde guy of normal height whose name was Neves, Spanish for snow. In the 1975, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, if you don't get that one. In the 1975 story in the weekday edition of the same newspaper, a 20-year-old woman, also in Spain, was arrested for 14 robberies. She was caught when she lost a shoe while running from the final scene. 
The detective in the case, a handsome young man who was considered the most eligible bachelor in, Ma- in Mallorca, solved the case when he lifted, fitted the shoe on the foot of the suspect. Naturally, the media latched onto this as the Cinderella robberies. The girl and, uh, ended up in court, but it was a court of law where she was convicted rather than a court of some prince someplace. Something similar happened in England only last year. A 17-year-old in Manchester robbed a store with a fake gun, then fled, leaving a shoe behind, and this led to the capture of the Cinderella Kid. Carl Jung's work on synchronicity eventually took him deeper and deeper into the paranormal, and he came to believe that the deepest areas of the human mind were involved with the paranormal. He was fascinated with the idea that the paranormal and some of the more esoteric laws of physics might be connected. Now, Jung knew Albert Einstein, and the two talked about the relativity of space and time, Einstein, of course, being famous for the theory and general theory, uh, and special theory of relativity, and uh, how it might relate to the human mind. Jung, call, Jung called this the psychic conditionality. As a matter of fact, Jung thought of his research on the human mind as something like an archaeological dig. If you dig deeply enough through the layers of the earth, you eventually find the whole record of humanity's past. In the same way, Jung believed that you can dig down through the layers of any human mind to find the whole record of the human past because people share what he called the collective unconscious. In my own paranormal work, I found something quite similar. I call it the unity. And I suppose it goes beyond the collective unconscious because it manifests not just a sharing of collective knowledge and memory among all people, but a sharing of collective identity among all things. I believe this is reflected in everything that forms the background of our existence, our history, our religions, our traditions, our shared instincts, and individual idiosyncrasies, even our fads. This is made possible by the elegant and intimate interaction of infinite numbers of real, parallel worlds containing all possibilities. Put that all together, and we get synchronicity as the normal state of existence, ultimately controlled by what I call our own collective subconscious. I've also noticed that events in the multiverse seem to occur in clusters or groups across many different but similar worlds at the same time, along with being another possible reason for what we call synchronicity. It agrees with the theory of seriality discussed by Austrian biologist Paul Kammerer, who lived from 1880 to 1926. He believed that all these coincidences are not random, that they occur in series. Kammerer defined seriality as, quote, the recurrence of the same or similar things or events in time and space, unquote. And again, he also called seriality, quote, the umbilical cord that connects thought, feeling, science, and art with the womb of the universe, which gave birth to them. But regardless of what you call it, hear it, or how you see it, synchronicity just goes on and on. Lost objects seem to be a genuine focus of synchronicity, and an amazing number of these objects seem to find their way home. Jung often talked about the case of a mother in Germany who took pictures of her son while on a trip to the famous Black Forest in 1914. She took the film to be developed, but before she could pick, uh, pick it up, World War I broke out, and that'll get in the way of your photography, and uh, the man with the film dropped everything to enlist in the German army. Finally, the woman resigned herself to the idea that she would never see the pictures. Five years later, in 1919, after the war was over, this woman was in a different part of Germany and walked into another photography shop to buy another roll of film. She then took pictures of her daughter. When that film was developed, the woman found that every single frame was a a double exposure. 
The new pictures of her daughter were exposed over the ones of her son from years before. Apparently, the film she had dropped off so far away in 1914 had been mistakenly repackaged as new film and had been resold to her years later. What are the chances of that happening? But there are good chances now we're going to take a break. So if uh, His Majesty King Umberto would push the right buttons, we'll be right back on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. Stay with us. Think about this. When Hurricane Sandy hit the East Coast, thousands of people were without power and their smartphones didn't work. The one thing that did work reliably was your radio. Yes, your radio station continued on the air, giving emergency information and helping you find needed services. The app did not work because the Internet and many cell phone services were down for more than a week. If your smartphone had a real radio in it, you could have heard the radio station's emergency reports. Sprint, Verizon, and AT&T have many Droid and Windows-based smartphones phones that do have radios in them. Next time you buy a smartphone, ask for one that has a real radio in it. An app is not a real radio in an emergency. Ask about the many HTC and Sony model droid phones and almost all Windows-based phones that have real radios in them. Ask for a smartphone with a real radio in it. This message is brought to you by this radio station because we care about your safety. Radio works when all other communications go down. Keep your real radio on and handy. You can do Depend on us for public service, Owen Radio. And here we are back in the world of synchronicity, listening to Behind the Paranormal. And our topic this evening is utterly bizarre, weird coincidences that really go beyond the pale of what is normally thought of as a coincidence. And we are, um, is that a call? Yeah. Oh, how do you like that? We'll get to it in a second. So let me just uh, finish this bit of a story. We'll, we have a caller uh, whom we will take in just a second. And I'll, I'll, but while I'm at it, why don't I just give you the numbers again? We're interested in hearing your stories of coincidences and synchronicity. And the number, 401-766-1240, or from anywhere in the USA and Canada, 800-449-1240. Hello, and welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Hello. Um, you spoke of umbil- umbilical cord. Uh, that was a quote from, um, Professor Kammerer, yes. But you triggered a memory I have from several years ago, and I didn't really think much of it. I thought it was a dream. Okay. I, I I hope you don't use my name or, you know. As long as you don't use it. People might think I'm crazy. (laughs) I I get that day in and day out. Don't worry about it. Everybody else is crazy. (laughs) Well, this is the truth. It's weird. I had a dream that I came out of my body with a cord attached to me. And I literally left the planet. I know it sounds ridiculous. No, actually, I've heard that before. And I came, I had to come back. I had to come back. And when I woke up in the morning, it was like real. It was real. Mm -hmm. To me, it was real. Okay. Do you think that's paranormal? It's uh, a good candidate for it. Yeah. Well, what what you're describing is a classic. Oh, this is not synchronicity, but it's a classic OBE or out of the body experience. The the silver cord or umbilical cord is there a was very a cord co- involved in my dream. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is is a classic uh, memory that people have of that experience. What it is is a matter of debate, but the out-of-the-body experience is very common. I, I'd love to have one, but I don't. I guess I'm too intellectual. It was fun, actually. Yeah. Some people are, are afraid of it. 
Other, I, I had a very good friend who had them all the time. He could have them at will, but he was terrified that he would not be able to get back to his body if that's what's really going on. I wanted to stay there. Actually. Yeah, yeah. It, it was. I I cannot explain it, but you know, it was a positive, positive you, thing. Uh, were, you, were you ill at the time, or was it just a normal you know, night, just a dream? Know. Okay, okay. No, I. Nothing, that's very common. Nothing different going on. It, it was something I just, you know. Experience in a dream. Sure. No, it's very, very common. Uh, it and it may, oh, yes. Crazy. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> you know, uh, so, but that's uh, pretty much known as an out of the body experience. It's, uh, well, why do some people get it and others don't? Well, some people may, may get it and not remember it. You know, uh, when you remember it, you know, a lot of things happen to us. One of the things we, we do, what our minds do, is to take experiences we don't understand and make them understandable. In other words, uh, and this is not quite the same as your experience, but somebody ran to me years ago with a picture of a piece of ice on the sidewalk, and they said, oh, look at this. And if you just, most people just look at it and see a piece of ice, but if you point out that it had, and it's difficult to say on the air because you can't see it, it looked like Santa Claus. It was a bag of toys. The arm was raised like in a wave. You could see the hat. And that that's just maybe synchronicity. Yeah, exactly. But but the brain will take this thing that doesn't make any sense and make it into something that does make sense. So a lot of people may have these experiences, and th- their minds will take it and turn it into something they can understand. And you know, the classic line is, "Oh, it was just one of those things." Oh no. Well, one it of what was things? More you know? real than reality. Absolutely. Yes, I've heard it described that way too. Well, you probably had what we would call a multiverse experience. You were. Uh, did you fly at all in this dream? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and you said you said you you went out beyond the the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A cord attached to me. Sure. Yeah. No, this is. I come back and it pulled me back. Okay. To reality, it Uh, was the weirdest thing I ever experienced. Did you encounter any other people, beings? No. Okay. Nope. All right. And how long ago was that, if I may ask? Oh, it had to be about five, eight years ago. And has it happened since? Anything like it? No. Okay. Nope. Ah, uh, you just right place, right time. A uh, couple oh, of. Oh, it was like I wish I could do it again. Yeah. That okay. Well. Wonderful and, and positive. Hey, the night is young. So. But, uh, that was, no, I'm not crazy. I wasn't taking drugs. No, not at all. Not at all. No. Uh-uh. I don't no. do drugs, and I I didn't drink that. Well, you could be. I don't know. I'm not your doctor, but I mean, <laughs> no. just, I hear this it stuff all the time from dream. from it perfectly is. normal. Uh, simple. You know. Uh, intelligent people it can happen to anyone right anytime i know people it's happened to when they haven't even been asleep so you you believe this has to do with paranormal i, I believe so yeah run into it all the time i do also but if i tell anyone they think i'm crazy <laughs> well you know and well I count know, your blessings I know what I felt. It was just something. Absolutely. Count your blessings. When I was starting out in this, everybody thought I was crazy, including the seminary, my seminary superiors, which is why I'm not wearing, I'm wearing the wrong kind of collar right, right. But, right. but it, people today are more accepting of this. Uh, supposedly, there were three million people li- listen to this show around the world, so somebody must be believing this. And uh, it, well, it, it's different when it happens to you. One. I, I wish I'd hear more about this kind of, you know, kind of experience. Yeah. I wish there were others that would call you and, and talk about it. Well, sure. Well, we have had shows on this. Uh, yeah. If you can work your way through the 450 hours of broadcast that's that's online. Yeah. If, uh, but we'll uh, I'll take that under advisement and talk to Ben, and we'll uh, we'll do another show on it. But it's nice to talk to, to you about this as an expert. Well, thank you. I, paranormal. Nice to talk to you too. Thank you. I appreciate you taking my call. Certainly. Thank you for calling in. Have a great night. And you.
Okay. Uh, so we'll get back to our uh, people. You're welcome to call in about any any paranormal subject. Certainly, the out of the body experiences is, is, as I say, very common. And uh, maybe you've had one. And, and because you, we don't have to use your name, you don't have to say what we would appreciate if you say where you're from, because we'd like to get some kind of idea of that. But uh, do feel free to call in again seven six six one two four zero four zero one area code or eight hundred four four nine one two four zero. So continuing with synchronicity these bizarre coincidences, Professor Hans Bender, who lived from 1907 to 1991, of Freiburg University, the Freiburg University Institute for the Border Areas of Psychology in Germany, was a great parapsychologist who studies psychic phenomena, uh, and I happen to know him. He knew Carl Jung well and was one of the leading researchers in what is known as depth psychology, which looks at the subconscious mind for various motives in psychiatric disorders. Bender's opinion uh, was that dreams really do come true. He found that every life and every mind has embedded symbols and patterns that manifest in dreams and ultimately in people's everyday lives, sometimes through the action of other people. Maybe that happened to our friend who just called. For example, Bender found that an actress had dreams of playing certain roles and that roughly 10% of those roles actually occurred later in her waking life. Now, synchronicity also seems to play a part in remarkable and sometimes life-saving instances of good luck. <clears throat> or maybe it's more than luck. Just ask, just ask the folks at the West Side Baptist Church in Beatrice, Nebraska. It was 63 years ago this month, and the church choir invariably held its rehearsals at 7.20 p.m. each Wednesday. I don't know why 7.20, but <clears throat> they did. On Wednesday, March 1st, 1950, at 7.27 p.m., the church was blown to smithereens in a natural gas explosion. The blast was so powerful that it shattered windows throughout the area and knocked a nearby radio station off the air. But nobody was even hurt because of something that had never happened before. No one was in the church because every one of the 15 choir members was late that evening. One of these was Rowena Vandegrift, who was quoted in a March 1st, 2010 article in the Beatrice Daily Sun, written to mark the 60th anniversary of the explosion. And Rowena said, was quoted as saying, it was an absolute miracle. It's a reminder that God watches over all of us. Now, whether it was synchronicity or divine intervention or both, the incident drew national attention and was even featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries in 1989. Marilyn Paul Mitchell, a member of, of the choir whose mother was the choir director in 1950, said that members were always prompt and ready to sing by 7.25 p.m. And she has uh, a quote from her, Mother expected all of us to be punctual. I can't remember a time when anybody was late. Vandergrift and her sister were late because their car broke down. The pastor, his wife, and his daughter were late because the daughter's dress had a wardrobe malfunction. The pastor had actually been at the church earlier that evening to light the furnace in preparation for the choir's arrival. Another choir member was working on an important letter, while another member and her daughter were late because they had an emergency at a relative's house. Yet another was late because he was taking care of his two sons and lost track of time. The pianist, who had planned to arrive 30 minutes early to practice, inexplicably fell asleep after dinner, causing her and her mother to be late too. Two high school students who sang in the choir, who usually rode together to choir rehearsal, were late because one had to listen to the end of a radio program. And finally, choir member jo Joyce Black, who lived across the street from the church, 
waited until the last possible minute before leaving because the weather was so cold. And she was quoted as saying, I was just plain lazy, so I kept putting off going out the door. At last, I couldn't put it off any longer, and when I opened the door, our church disintegrated. The church was eventually rebuilt, and today the congregation continues to grow. Interestingly, Rowena Vandegrift said that she thinks about all the children and grandchildren of the choir members who wouldn't be alive today if things had been different on March 1st, 1950. And another quote from her, I just think about the impact all these lives have had on other people. Each of our lives has touched other people in some way or form, which would not have happened if we had been killed in that explosion. And that, dear listener, is the best side of synchronicity, I think. Wonderful tribute, in a way, to the certainly the protection of God and uh, the way he, she, it, or them may, might use synchronicity. Another beneficial outcome, although not for the crook, took place in March 1977. That's the month that Vin Johnson burglarized the home of Nancy Hart and David Connor in Austin, Texas. Among the items he took were checks and deposit slips belonging to both Hart and Connor. Not long afterward, Johnson turned up at a local branch of the Republic National Bank with one of Connor's checks made out to Hart in the amount of $200. Wielding one of Hart's deposit slips in order to avoid the suspicion that something was fishy, Johnson asked the bank teller to deposit $100 into Hart's account and give him the rest in cash. But Johnson failed to notice one small problem. The bank teller was Nancy Hart. Johnson was convicted of burglary and went to the Nick. Wolfgang Pauli, 1900-1958, was a Nobel Prize-winning physicist from Austria and one of the pioneers of quantum physics. He considered synchronicity to be, quote, the visible traces of untraceable principles, unquote. Pauli knew Carl Jung, and he realized that Jung was onto something with this whole idea of synchronicity. And what's more, Pauli started finding all sorts of meaning in his dreams because of it. He found that themes, patterns, and symbols from his dreams would turn up in everyday life, from lectures to statements from students and in letters from other scientists to the findings of other researchers. And Pauli found that what Ben and I have found, and that's something that has been difficult for me because of my academic background. You can come to great insights by following the paths laid out by synchronicity and intuition and not subordinating these to pure intellect. The message is not to check your brain at the door and substitute magical thinking for critical thinking. The message is that intellect is only part of the picture. You need an awareness of the messages, if you want to call them that, that you and the whole biosphere are sending yourself through synchronicity, intuition, and even what's thought of as psychic power, in order to see the big picture. Using intellect and science alone, quote-unquote science, will give you just as distorted a picture of reality, yourself and others, as will using magical thinking alone. This could even manifest in concrete reality. For example, Wolfgang Pauli got a kick out of the fact that laboratory equipment had a way of going haywire or not working at all when he was present. The instances of this went way beyond statistical probability and became so well known that his fellow scientists referred to the Pauli effect when things didn't work. Supposedly, one or more scientists wouldn't let Pauli into their labs because the machinery would fail as soon as he came in. Oddly, the same thing often happens to me, but on a smaller scale and in a little different way. Machinery often fails around me, including, unfortunately, my car, unless I'm operating it myself or really need it to operate. 
So in other words, I'll go in someplace, and uh, some office or someplace, and things tend to malfunction. I guess if you're in business, you'll never invite me to your place. Things tend to malfunction, and um, if but but if I really am in dire need of something, they don't. They don't malfunction every time, but it just happens beyond the, the possibility. It's about forty percent of the time. Also, and I don't necessarily find this reassuring. Strangers I look at in crowd situations, except an audience, fortunately. So if I ever give a lecture around here, don't hesitate to come because you won't fall over. Even at a great distance, I'll see them. They'll either trip, fall, or drop what they're carrying about 40% of the time. As I say, not, not something that's not necessarily reassuring. So what's that about? I mean, I try to be a compassionate soul and certainly have no intention of hurting anybody. Interestingly, this phenomenon does not occur if I think about it. In the same way, nearly every show guest with paranormal abilities for the last six years on this uh, program and others will tell us that as soon as they think about how that ability works, it won't work. Makes you wonder. Then again, maybe best not to. A marvelous and life-saving example of events synchronizing in the nick of time and in a way that kind of illustrates what we just said took place in New Jersey on May 1st, 1989. Locomotive engineer Richard Campagna, or Campana, and conductor Anthony Falzo were taking their 19-car freight train around a downhill curve at a hefty 25 miles an hour. Suddenly, on the tracks ahead, they spotted what they at first thought were two brightly colored blankets. When one of these moved, both men realized to their horror that these weren't blankets at all, but two toddlers. Campana yanked the engine's emergency brake and let loose an ear-splitting blast on the air horn. The train began to slow, but the two men realized that there was not enough distance for the train to stop, and those things don't exactly stop on a dime. Their blood froze as they realized they were going to hit the children. Without thinking, now there's intellect out the window again, Falzo ran out of the cab onto the engine's front platform and began shouting, Two little boys looked up from the tracks ahead but didn't move. Now, Falzo had been a high school gymnast a few years before this. So again, without thinking, he leaped off the engine. Barely keeping ahead of the train, he dove at the track, grabbed a boy in each arm, heaved himself and them off the track, then lay flat on the ground. They were still so close to the track that the leading sill of the locomotive car body ripped the back of Falzo's vest and knocked one of the boys' heads back. The train finally stopped and Falzo and the boys found themselves next to the the second freight car. The boy who had been hit in the head had nothing worse than cuts on his chin and forehead, much to Falzo's relief. The boys turned out to be Todd Pritchard, three years old, and his brother Scott, 18 months, who lived in a house next to the tracks and were supposed to have been in the backyard. Kate Pritchard, their mother, whose forte was apparently not child supervision, had heard the locomotive horn and come running to find the children safe in the arms of the heroic conductor. Suppose the children had not been wearing clothing bright enough for the train crew to spot at a distance. What if the conductor that day had not been a former gymnast? Suppose the track shoulder had been a little higher and there hadn't been enough space for the engine sill to clear the the trio lying on the ground. And suppose the um, boys had been on the track a few minutes earlier when a high-speed commuter train had passed through. The Pritchards could thank heaven for synchronicity. It always strikes me that people blame God, or at least fate, for their misfortunes. But look at it another way. Sure, we all face tragedy and loss at some point in our lives, but look at all the terrible things that could happen but don't. 
Often you can thank or blame synchronicity, which I believe ultimately traces back to our own collective collective subconscious. This ability to shape our own world, in a way, was well known to our remote ancestors, especially shamans and mystics. They knew that concepts, events, and objects can take on long lives of their own. They were well acquainted with synchronicity. Even though it seems to use the collective unconscious, synchronicity often has intensely personal significance for the person or the people at the center of it. Driving home from work in El Paso, Texas, one evening in 1934, fellowed by the name of Al Smith, came upon the terrible traffic accident. A truck had collided with a highway patrol motorcycle. The bike was pancaked, and the officer, Alan Falby, had been thrown 20 feet up and off the road. Smith, the first one on the scene, found Falby with a ruptured artery in the right leg. Blood was pouring out, and Smith knew that he had to do something until help arrived or Falby would die. So Smith yanked off his necktie and used it as a tourniquet to keep the bleeding down until an ambulance arrived. Falby lived, and doctors were able to save the leg. Four and a half years later, in December 1938, Falby was back on his motorcycle and on patrol when he came upon a car that had gone out of control, left the road, and smashed into a tree. The driver was unconscious, and there was blood spurting from a ruptured artery in the right leg. Falby rigged up a tourniquet. When he finally had time to look at the man's face, he saw that of, you guessed it, his own lifesaver, Al Smith. Synchronicity can even affect whole nations. The Comoro Islands off the west west coast of Africa were granted independence from France in 1975. Only four weeks later, a socialist revolutionary named Ali Soli, Soli, I should say, Ali Soli, seized power and established a brutal dictatorship. He did so with the help of a French mercenary, a Colonel Robert Denard. Soli frequently consulted a shaman, mainly because he was paranoid about his own rule and his own well-being, as have been all dictators from the Roman emperors and King Herod all the way down through Hitler and Stalin. The shaman told Soily that he could be killed only by a man with a dog. Naturally, Soily had every dog his forces could find on the island killed, and in the end, though, Soily was killed by a man with a dog. The same Colonel Denard, realizing he had made a big mistake, led a small army of European mercenaries in a coup d'etat against Soily, in the course of which the dictator was killed. Denard had come to the islands with his Alsatian dog and had kept the pooch with him the whole time. The largest invasion in the history of war was the D-Day invasion of France in June 1944, officially known as Operation Overlord. This changed the course of World War II in Europe. Every phase of the operation and the preparation for it, including the code names for the invasion beaches, Omaha, Utah, Sword, and the rest, was highly secret. In eastern England, the Allies even set up fake armies, complete with tents, buildings, rubber tanks, and wooden artillery, just to fool German spies and bomber pilots. Yet in the month before the invasion, the words Overlord, Utah, Omaha, Sword, and other crucial code names appeared in the London Daily Telegraph newspaper's crossword puzzles. Enraged and terrified that word of the operation had leaked, military police raided the newspaper's offices. But instead of a Nazi spy, they discovered an old school teacher named Leonard Daw, who had been composing the paper's crossword puzzle for the previous 20 years and he had no knowledge whatsoever about D-Day. Now, I've had my own synchronicities, too. One of them happened just this morning. 
when I uh, crawled out of the sack, I uh, happened to turn on my cell phone, and I saw there were three phone messages. Two of them were routine. One was from a friend of mine in England who was connected with the Rendlesham UFO case. Now, uh, I don't believe she's been on this edition of the show, but she's been on, on our CBS edition only um, uh, about two months ago. And her name is Brenda uh, Butler, and Brenda was one of the first researchers of that case. We have covered it backwards and forwards more than any other show on radio or TV in the world. And essentially what has happened is that along with the strange UFO sightings in 1980 and all sorts of odd things going on in the woods there, uh, which Ben and I visited ourselves in September, uh, we there there have been a lot of strange synchronicities involved. Ben and I believe, and we gave a lecture over there to this uh, effect, and we think that we convinced the local townspeople of the same thing, that Rendlesham Forest is what we refer to as a thin place, where the boundaries between these parallel worlds we're always talking about and all those possibilities are very thin, which is why you see UFOs, ghosts, even Bigfoot or Yeti, as they call it in England, and uh, all, you name it, and it's there. You know, little people, the whole business, everything from legend and myth, from the, the human race's cultural history, seem to be there in Rendlesham Forest, and uh, that's because the, the world seemed to blur in there. And I think that's that's what happens. They seem to be unrelated, but it's the same process. So, in any case, I saw a call from Brenda on my phone. Now, she has never called me before, not to mention that, that she doesn't have a computer when it's one heck of an expensive call if you don't use Skype or something like that. So I, uh, it said, Brenda, the caller ID said Brenda Butler and then gave her number. Well, I'd only been given her number a few days ago by our show reporter over there, uh, Ronnie Dugdale, a uh, good friend and uh, the fellow who keeps us informed. He's sort of our mole in the operation over there in the, the local scene in the Rendlesham case. And uh, so I had never had a chance to call Brenda or give her our number. But nevertheless, there was this caller ID, Brenda Butler, and her number. But when I looked again, her name had disappeared, and the, and the number was still there, but it said unknown, which is really strange. So I called Brenda, and she was kind of surprised to hear me. And she said she had not called me that morning, and there was no message. And uh, that, But, of course, things like this happen uh, all the time regarding this Rendlesham case. So... What kind of synchronicity is that? Well, it's obviously something strange. It might not really be a coincidence, but you wonder what, what might have happened. I look back at another incident in my life that uh, has been a tremendous sort of synchronicity, and that was uh, we were traveling, we being my wife Jackie and my sons uh, Ben, whom you know, and Jonathan, uh, traveling down south uh, where Jackie's family lives, part of it, and we were coming back and stopped in Richmond, which we had never visited before, Richmond, Virginia. And we happened to be in a restaurant. I just picked it out of a hat and went went in. And I was taking uh, the um, one of my sons up to see the fish tank there. There was in the large, a lot of fish in there. And I heard, hey, Paul. I turned around. There's my cousin from Windsor Locks, Connecticut. And of all, how we got to be in the same place at the same time was, was really just bizarre. And he spent the rest of the evening. He was on his way to Florida for a not-too-pleasant uh, uh, something he had to do. And I often wonder, you know, why did we meet in that place at that time? He spent the rest of the evening with us. But uh, one might, if, if he had not met us, he might have gone out and been killed by a car. There might have been a terrible traffic accident. All sorts of things that could have happened might not happen because of these synchronicities. Uh, and the synchronicities having to do with things like the Titanic disaster. Maybe there was some warning in there somehow. Uh, you don't go around saying things like, not even God can sink this ship. 
You don't do things like that. It's not smart. So who knows what these things were or what the synchronicities um, could have been or, or what, what good or bad results could have come from them. But they do happen to all of us. Um, I'll sort of end on that, that subject on a sort of a note that one of Carl Jung's favorite stories was Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll, which is we know as Alice in Wonderland. That's full of synchronicities and parallel worlds and things happening that shouldn't and couldn't and wouldn't and did. And certainly all, all kinds of themes of that kind. Now, at one point, there's a conversation between Alice and the White Queen that kind of illustrates everything we've been saying. That the world is kind of topsy-turvy, that it's backwards and forwards, and that things aren't necessarily caused. It may take place because they need to or have meaning. The Queen says to Alice, It's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards. The rule is, jam tomorrow and jam yesterday, but never jam today. It must come sometimes to jam today, Alice objected. No, it can't, said the Queen. It's jam every other day. Today isn't any other day, you know. I don't understand you, said Alice. It's dreadfully confusing. That's the effect of living backwards, the Queen said kindly. It always makes one a little giddy at first. Living backwards, Alice repeated in great astonishment. I never heard of such a thing. But there's one great advantage in it, the Queen replied, that one's memory works both ways. I'm sure mine only works one way, Alice remarked. I can't remember things before they happen. It's a, a poor sort of memory that only works backwards, the Queen remarked. So maybe your memory through synchronicity can work forward. And that's about it, folks. <laughs> Synchronicities. I guess it's a coincidence that I ended just as we uh, came to the two-minute mark. Uh, we don't have any time for emails, but we did an email show last night uh, on CBS. Uh, we get t- tons and tons of these, and I always try to save those open line shows for when Ben is with me because we have some good discussions and, and people tend to enjoy it. So uh, you can check these podcasts, of course, at BehindTheParanormal.com. We have 450 at least podcasts there that are entirely free. Uh, hopefully you can use a computer because you can get, if you have a lot of time to kill, 450 hours worth, you can hear all these shows, plus all the shows on the Rendlesham case, which were two- and three-hour specials from 2010 and 2011. So you're welcome to do that. Also, you can buy my books on that site, subscribe to our newsletter, or apply to become a show reporter like Ronnie Dugdale. And uh, we do ask you to buy your books if you're going to be interested in my scribblings. If you want to buy my books, uh, Faces at the Window, Footsteps in the Attic, or Turning Home, God, Ghost, and Human Destiny, you can certainly go to that site, and uh, it helps us keep them free, those podcasts, okay? So many thanks to our producer this evening, Steve Bianchi, and on our March 25th show next week, April 1st, we will talk about a very appropriate subject for April Fool's Day, the trickster, a very common theme throughout human culture. And I will have uh, the pleasure of a guest co-host filling in for Ben. That will be the great Rosemary Ellen Guiley, prolific paranormal author, uh, renowned paranormal expert, and uh, certainly a good friend uh, whom we know as the paranormal renaissance woman. So she'll be with us by phone as a guest host next week. Our CBS Radio edition on on March, December, March 26th in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle on radio.com will be rebroadcast because of Easter. So get those questions in. We leave this evening with a quick thought from our good friend Ralph Waldo Emerson. These are the voices which we hear in solitude, but they grow faint and inaudible as we enter into the world, unquote. See you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.